one of the greatest risks is inaction, such that an increasing percentage of our expenditures is going to pay interest on our debt. There's an opportunity cost to spending more money on interest on the debt. And this, of course, has long-term implications for future generations. Welcome to Management Matters, the award-winning National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, president of the Academy. In September, we focus on our grand challenge to advance the nation's long-term fiscal health. And in this podcast episode, I'll be talking with Academy Fellow Michelle Sager, Managing Director of the Government Accountability Office's Strategic Issues Team, about GAO's perspective on the nation's fiscal health. Michelle, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to chat with you and talk about GAO's work. Well, I know we've got lots of great things to talk about at GAO, but before we jump in, I want to talk about you because you've had such an interesting career. You've been at GAO almost 25 years, but you've had some other important assignments along the way. So I'd love to know both how you got started there and what brought you back. I'm happy to answer that question. And I will say at the outset that as I answer, I realize that I start to sound a little bit like an infomercial for GAO. And that's because it's such a great place to work. I think GAO's mission is really compelling for anyone who wants to contribute to solutions for more efficient and effective government. And GAO really appealed to my desire to conduct a research that makes a difference, that's actionable, and that achieves results. So as I was thinking about potential opportunities and where I wanted to land, GAO definitely presented an opportunity to be part of something that had lasting value and contributed to the public good. And we do that through objective, nonpartisan research that includes recommendations to executive branch agencies, technical assistance to Congress, and matters for congressional consideration. And that provision of evidence-based information is a really critical function for GAO. So. GAO offered all of that, and it occurs in an environment where our statutory authority provides access to information, as well as internal specialists and resources that make sure that our work reflects the best information available from a multidisciplinary perspective. And the added bonus is that GAO really is a great place to work. In fact, this year we were named the best place to work among mid-sized federal agencies in 2023. And then kind of the sprinkles on top are that GAO's people values, that people are valued, respected, and treated fairly. They're infused throughout our approach to how we conduct our work, as well as how we treat each other in the workplace. So kind of in a nutshell, working at GAO offered an opportunity to make a difference and contribute to policy issues in an environment of continuous learning with really intelligent, really kind, and collaborative colleagues. Well, that is sort of an infomercial, but for anybody that's listening, you might also get a lot of job applications uh, in a week or two. Which is fantastic. (laughs) We we should probably put the link to that in the show notes so that people can find you even easier. So you've been in lots of different aspects of GAO, but now you oversee GAO's high-risk program. So tell us a little bit about that and what's at the top of the list. 
Definitely. So to get started, I think it is helpful to explain a little bit about what is GAO's high-risk list. And this is something that has evolved over more than three decades. And what it is, is it represents the areas that are at greatest risk of fraud, waste, abuse, mismanagement, or in need of fundamental transformation to make government more efficient and effective. And we update the list every two years at the beginning of each new Congress. So as we think about what's at the top of the list, part of uh, what makes that a hard question to answer is that right now we have 37 high-risk areas and they span a really broad range of topics across the federal government. Although there are a lot of areas on the list, I will say that the great news this year is that as we issued this list, one of our findings was that we saw progress in 16 areas, and that was the most progress we had seen since GAO began using the current rating system about eight years ago. And that progress also was demonstrated in about $100 billion in financial benefits since we issued our last high-risk update two years ago. So I I won't talk through all 37 areas. That would be a lot. But I will note that some of these high-risk areas are in need of significant attention because of emerging issues that require government responses. They have large and rapidly growing costs or in some areas, there's a failure to make progress over the last couple of years. So some of those areas include things such as ensuring the cybersecurity of the nation, federal efforts to prevent drug misuse, modernizing the U.S. financial regulatory system, the U.S. government's environmental liability, federal oversight of food safety, limiting the federal government's fiscal exposure by better managing our climate change risks. And then something we've heard about in the news recently, oversight of medical products, including drug shortages. So all of the details on those specific areas, as well as everything else, to get to that 37 areas on the high-risk list, they're all on our website, and it goes into a lot more detail about what some of those specific recommendations are that we've made and what actions agencies are or are not taking to show progress. So being on the high-risk list is not like being nominated for the Oscars, where it's an honor to be nominated, right? But the high-risk list really is motivational in terms of changing institutional behavior across the federal government. It definitely is. And that's part of what we try to talk about with federal agency leaders, that although we understand it may not be thrilling for them to understand that one of their programs is on the high-risk list, nonetheless, one of the bits of feedback we've heard over many years is that for some agencies, it really can be a catalyst for action and it helps them focus attention and focus resources so that they can show measurable progress within their agencies. And it also helps them foster those conversations with Congress about the resources that they need to be able to move the needle on whatever the topic is. So although it may not always be the most welcome bit of news during the course of their workday, it is something where we are really pleased that there's a lot of constructive engagement from the federal agencies and then also from OMB working across the federal government, trying to foster those conversations to talk about what exactly needs to happen in order to either narrow one of the areas on the high-risk list or ideally over time, eventually remove an area from the list. 
Even just producing the list is a logical outcome of GAO's oversight responsibility. And of course, GAO is a major player in that oversight community at the federal level. But you also work closely with the audit community across state and local governments. And that's not a very well-known feature of GAO's work. Tell us a little bit about how that process and those relationships work. Definitely. I'm happy to talk about that. And it is one of those areas that unless you're kind of within the accountability community, it's not something that you may appreciate is happening on a really regular basis. And it plays out in a number of different ways. One is that we have a a team within GAO called our Strategic Planning and External Liaison Team. And one of the things that they help all of us do on a broad range of topics is make sure that we are connected to our state and local auditor counterparts. And that includes as we're starting up new work, as appropriate, we sometimes reach out to our state and local auditor counterparts and find out if they have already conducted work. We don't want to duplicate that work, but sometimes we're able to leverage it or if it's on a topic that is intergovernmental in nature, such as Medicaid or federal highway funding, often we can work together thinking about what's really happening on the ground in a particular state or locality. So that's one way that we work together. And then in addition to that, many state and local auditors also serve in an advisory capacity to GAO so that we are sure we understand what is happening in those intergovernmental programs. And then a third way that we work together, this played out during the Great Recession as we were following implementation of the Recovery Act, and it has continued in a different context during the COVID-19 relief and recovery programs. We come together as an accountability community on initially a monthly basis. Now it's happening on a bi-monthly basis to really compare notes about who's doing what, what federal guidance has been provided, what questions are emerging among states and localities, as well as to share some of our findings and our ongoing work from GAO so that we're all connecting and coming together as a community, sharing leading practices, sharing findings, sharing new work that is happening. So it's a really rich series of connections. I really appreciate you raising the intergovernmental aspect of this because as the Academy has said, there's really no solution to a problem-facing government that fits within a single layer of the of the intergovernmental system. So as you're building these relationships and as you're looking at these complex multi-level programs, are you finding that the states and localities are facing the same high-risk issues as the federal government or are there big differences in kind of what would make the lists at the different levels? To some extent, they're the same and in other cases it's different. And so as an example, Ensuring the cybersecurity of the nation is something that's on our high-risk list at GAO, but it's one of those issues that absolutely transcends levels of government, and every public entity is facing some version of that. So that's one of those areas where at intergovernmental audit forums, which is another way that we come together as an audit community, we share what we are finding as well as leading practices for cybersecurity. And so that's one of those areas that really does transcend levels of government. And then certainly there are some other areas such as defense contracting that are more specific to the federal government. But more often than not, there are certainly commonalities among the issues that we're talking about and what other levels of government are facing. 
So as you engage in these multi-level conversations, are you finding solutions in the systemic risk issues that we're all facing? You mentioned Medicare, you mentioned the Recovery Act. Are you able to find and then publish sort of best practices or common solution spaces that other people can pick up? We are sometimes, although I will add the caveat that where those solutions are specific to a level of government, then of course that's reflected in the particular report. But another example of that would be human capital challenges. So attracting and retaining employees, particularly in the public sector where depending on the context, there may be pay caps or the public sector may not be able to recruit, for example, an IT position at the same salary level as a private sector entity. So that's the kind of issue where the context and the very specific finding may be different. But again, there's a lot of commonality and a lot that we can learn from each other in terms of approaching the general subject matter. Well, it certainly sounds like a rich area of both research and collaboration that's very productive as you move it forward. I want to circle back to the grand challenge that I mentioned at the beginning of the the podcast, the focus on securing the nation's long-term fiscal health. This is something GAO has had a lot to say about over the years. And so as we sit here today in September of 2023, what is GAO's current perspective on the issue of federal finances? So I'll talk about our current perspective, and unfortunately, it's one that has remained consistent for many years. The specifics change year to year, the numbers, the data points change, but the bottom line is that the federal government faces an unsustainable long-term fiscal future, and right now, that is an unsustainable long-term fiscal future where we have increasingly large projected deficits with that are driving our high debt levels. And some things that have remained the same is that we continue to have uh, an aging population. Our healthcare costs have continued to increase. Things such as uh, spending for social security, spending on federal health programs, and other program spending continues to be projected to increase. What is different in the current environment is some of the cost for interest as our interest rates have risen, that that is a very different circumstance than what we might have been talking about, say, a year or two ago. So you mentioned some of the drivers, aging population, the cost of caring for them, the interest on the debt, which continues to grow. When you say that this is unsustainable, though, what what do you really mean by unsustainable? So when we're talking about the the broad long-term fiscal challenge, uh, the basic nuts and bolts of that gets at an inequality. We're spending more than we're bringing in in revenue. That's a gross oversimplification of the many data points that are underlying that. But That's basically what's happening. And then within that context, we have those drivers that are continuing to drive up the cost. In addition, we have tax revenue that has remained more or less constant for about the past 20 years. And that is projected to continue as a trend while spending continues to outpace what we expect to bring in in tax revenues. And then in addition to that, of course, many other things are happening. We all lived through the COVID-19 pandemic, which brought a lot of unanticipated cost. We also have things such as natural disasters and other 
unpredictable emergencies that put additional pressure on an already stretched federal budget. So to cover that deficit between spending and revenue, the federal government then has to borrow. And as I mentioned in the current environment, we currently have high interest rates that make it more expensive for everybody to borrow, but that includes for the federal government to borrow. So our new debt costs more. And as our maturing debt has to be refinanced, it may have to be refinanced at higher rates. So all of that combined creates an unsustainable fiscal path. The current political dialogue, we hear a lot about just balancing the federal budget, which is really easy to say. But when it comes down to making choices, those choices are really hard and many of them are unpopular and many of them affect you know individual pocketbooks so when gao looks at this imbalanced balance sheet what have you advised congress to do or what choices have you provided them on ways to at least make the federal debt sustainable that's a really interesting question and I'll talk about a couple of things that we have communicated and continue to communicate over time with regard to what what are those trade-offs that Congress has to make. And they could be in the form of raising revenue. They could be in the form of reducing expenditures. Most likely, they would be some combination of the two operating in tandem, as well as having a long-term fiscal plan for how to manage spending and revenue, as well as our debt levels. So all of that together. And then in terms of how we communicate that to Congress, we have an annual fiscal health report that is available on our website. And then we also communicate to Congress in congressional hearings. We have a video that simplifies kind of the overall message to talk about what those trade-offs and choices look like. And then we also do things such as podcasts. And our, our annual fiscal health report essentially kind of it sounds the alarm about the nation's long-term fiscal outlook, and it urges Congress to develop an action plan that would get the federal government off of its currently unsustainable fiscal path. And yet the reason we choose this month to focus on the nation's long-term fiscal health is because in theory, there's a budget that's due at the end of the month. We're looking at another potential continuing resolution or shutdown. How did those actions play into the fiscal health assessment? So we have done some work on uh, continuing resolutions as well as shutdowns and just talked about the reality of that being more common than not. It's the, the rule rather than the exception. And we're also framing some new work talking about the current or the recently solved debt limit impasse, at least solved for this year, but not solved for the long term, thinking about what were the effects and trying to quantify that or at least talk about what the implications of that debt limit impasse are as Congress thinks about all of those things that you just talked about coming together on a budget, potential CR, hopefully not a shutdown. Um, and one of the things that we also try to communicate is, especially as we're thinking about the debt, it's somewhat similar to thinking about your own personal household budget, where if you spend more than you bring in an income, then you're probably financing that. And every similarly, 
for the federal government, every dollar that we spend on financing our debt, that's a missed opportunity to pay for something else that is a policy priority, whether that's education, whether that's healthcare, whether that's national defense. So putting it in pretty simple terms, I think helps, even though it's a very complex problem with a lot of different political vantage points at every point along the spectrum. It's not easy to solve, but it really is a dollar dollar and cents kind of issue. Mm-hmm. And so we diagnose the federal fiscal health patient as not being particularly healthy. How do things look at the state and local government level? Are, are they healthier? And what impact does their fiscal health have on the national fiscal health level? That's a really interesting question and one that we have tried to follow over a number of years. And it it definitely changed a lot over the last couple of years as we encountered the pandemic Going into that experience, most states and most localities, fortunately, were in a pretty good position in terms of their own rainy day fund balances. Nonetheless, the federal government certainly responded with hundreds of billions of dollars to the sector, to states and localities in the form of federal fiscal assistance to help them both respond to and recover from the pandemic. And so at GAO, we are continuing to follow their use of those funds as well as how they are reporting on their use of those funds. And the nature of some of those funds is such that the spend out goes out for a couple of years, even from now. So that work will continue. And it really gets back to something we talked about earlier, which is the interconnected nature of the intergovernmental system, that it really operates very much in tandem. So many of the federal policy priorities play out in a very intergovernmental way, whether it's Medicaid, whether it's federal highway funding, or many of the other federal grant programs that rely on state and local governments to implement them. It very much requires that all levels of government be in kind of good fiscal health in order for all of that work to work and for those federal policy priorities to succeed. Well, and there's kind of a third leg to this fiscal health stool, which is individuals, right? So if the federal level were not too healthy, at the state and local level were more healthy, what has GAO learned about the financial health of individuals, both during the height of the pandemic and today? And that has been a a fascinating additional story for us to follow as it has changed so much in the last three and a half years. Uh, One of the responsibilities that GAO had was to follow the pandemic response and recovery funding that Congress provided. And so in our reports on the pandemic response and recovery, we've looked at a number of different federal programs that were designed to, to support the economy and support individuals during the pandemic, as well as to continue to address some lingering economic effects. As I think a number of listeners probably recall during the beginning part of the pandemic, the first months in particular, there were multiple federal agencies that provided federal assistance to help alleviate those very real financial hardships that individuals and businesses faced. And that included unemployment insurance payments to both individuals as well as loans to businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program and something that was called the COVID-19 Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. And these programs provided support to individuals as well as to businesses. And they were 
aimed at addressing some of those really detrimental outcomes and also aimed at preventing them from getting worse. And then at the same time, the Federal Reserve also had some emergency lending programs that they made available to support the flow of credit to different parts of the economy during the pandemic. And so all of that combined uh, was a really interesting story to follow as it played out over months and now has played out over years. And during the course of that, GAO made a number of recommendations aimed at helping federal agencies improve their management of these programs to better meet the needs of those intended recipients that included small businesses and individuals. You've just described this incredibly complex interrelated network of different levels of financial health, and every one has an impact on the other. As you think about the future and the the issues you've just described, what do you think, what does GAO think, are the greatest risks to our national fiscal health? One of the greatest risks is inaction, such that an increasing percentage of our expenditures is going to pay interest on our debt. There's an opportunity cost to spending more money on interest on the debt. And this, of course, has long-term implications for future generations. And implications on the market, the financial markets and interest rates and everything, right? Definitely. And that's something historically GAO has looked at and we will continue to do so. And so the flip side of that coin is what should we be doing today to avoid inaction and make our fiscal health more secure. So one of the things GAO has recommended and then continues to talk to individual members of Congress and committee chairs about is creating a fiscal plan to provide policymakers with some kind of framework to really help support those admittedly very difficult policy decisions that are required to achieve that more sustainable fiscal future. And that would help provide a cohesive picture of the government's fiscal goals, as well as a roadmap for achieving those goals. And we've identified a couple of components that could be part of that effective fiscal plan. So, for example, it could include an assessment of what are those drivers of the deficits, both on the revenue side as well as on the spending side, and what are some of those alternative approaches to the debt limit so that we don't find ourselves at another impasse in the future. And so those are some of the things that we continue to talk to Congress about to make sure that we can address this long-term lack of sustainability. Well, Michelle, I want to thank you so much for laying out in such rational terms solutions and actions to what can seem just overwhelming when we think about the federal debt and, and how to bring all of these imbalances back into balance. Really, thank you for that and the work that you're doing with GAO. And thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And it was my pleasure to have this conversation. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new episode from the Academy as we work to build a just, fair, and inclusive government that strengthens communities and protects democracy.